afternoon. Can you hear me? Yes. Yesterday, uh, when we were at the um, the day of prayer, the guy said, um, "If you can hear me, you have to shout Amen." And he went on for about five minutes, going to say Amen, saying Hallelujah. I wondered how that. How did you feel? All right. So, can you hear me? <laughs> it's exciting. See, look at that. It's never happened in Portswood. <laughs> Okay, um, this, uh, this afternoon we're going to be continuing Zechariah, and it's been really exciting studying these books. Um, I think the hard thing that, that you get is often that it's kind of return to me, do this, you've been bad, come back, la la la. But if we just get that, we miss um, a vital, vital part of all of this, and that is the love of God. And I wonder if, like me, sometimes you have a bit of doubt about God's feelings towards you, or you're not quite sure quite what God thinks about you. Okay, you might um, be a bit doubtful, or you might be wondering, I wonder if actually what I say is really true, or does God actually make any difference in my life? Is it actually making a difference? Sometimes when we look at the reality around us of maybe a really dirty house and a really annoying spouse, <laughs> not that I have one, honestly, um, but we, and then we go wider, don't we? We go, we walk down the road and, and we see poverty and we see sickness and we see illness and we see global problems. We start to maybe think, I wonder what God is doing in this. And as I think about this, I thought about Abraham um, when they were told that they would have a child, when Sarah was told she was going to have a child. And in Romans, it tells us this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And I love the bit in there where it says he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. I love that because I just think, yeah, we don't have to be foolish in our faith. We don't have to look and say, oh, everything is actually fine. No problems, actually. God is good. But actually, we face the fact that we live in a world that is not, it's not how it should be. But even admitting that, we don't have to lose faith. We can, like Abraham, not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God, but just be strengthened in our faith and give glory to God. We're saying, God, you are good. You should be praised. And if you say it, it's okay. That will happen. And throughout the Bible, we see that God desires this, for people to trust in him and to act over that. And over the last few weeks, we've been journeying with our fellow Jews here. We've studied their journey, returning from exile to Jerusalem. And we saw how a few of them had faith to return and then even 
Fewer of them, when the foundations were laid, had faith to believe what God was going to do. They looked at the earthy state of things. They looked at just a few, the foundation, looked at it and said, it's pretty small. It's not really what it was, is it? I wonder if anything is actually going to happen. And we've seen then how in that discouragement, God sent his prophets to encourage them to start the work again. He doesn't just leave them, does he? He encourages them. He disciplines them. He reminds them what they should be doing while all the time affirming them. And that's really important for us to grasp this morning. He affirms them of his love the whole time. He affirms them that he is the Lord Almighty and his love for them, his mighty love, his unchanging promises and plans stand despite their disobedience. And that's important, isn't it? He, his unfailing promises stand. They're not dependent on these people. He rebukes them. He wants them to return to him. He calls out to them. He draws them, but his love for them stands. And in Zechariah 7 and 8, we, um, if you've been here the last few weeks, there's kind of these wacky pictures and it's all about, you know, God's plans and prosper for the future. But, He takes a break from that and he gives us a picture of the present. And in chapter 1, verse 7, I know we've had 8 read, but I'm going to just whack a little bit of 7 in there because they do go together. It says, in the fourth year of King Darius, that's two years after he sent Haggai, he comes and he he came with those words about, you know, staying in panelled houses, come on, get going, and two years of building And throughout that time, we're told in Ezra that the prophets were there encouraging them. They set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were there supporting them. So they weren't alone. You know, they had a big task to do, but they were not aligned. And interesting, month after month after month, if you read through Ezra and Zechariah, you'll see... In the sixth month, in the seventh month, in the eighth month, month after month, you see that God brings a word of encouragement to them. He's continually speaking into their situation, correcting them, yes, but also affirming them of his love. Those two things go together. And we come to chapter 7, they basically, the temple's got going, and so a delegation comes and says the following um, in chapter 7, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Now, just to give you a bit of background, when they went to exile, they kind of set up these um, times of mourning and fasting. Um, They did it in different months to commemorate different things, destruction of the temple, um, kings falling, that sort of thing. All the stuff to do with them being taken into exile. And these fasts were established. So it seems a reasonable question, if the temple is now being rebuilt, should we fast that it's been destroyed? Should we let that one go now? And of course... um, Fasting was there for repentance, wasn't it? National crisis, they come together and they fast. But rather than accepting this kind of religious practice, they get a different answer. They get this. Was it really for me you fasted? And I was thinking about this. I thought it's easy to fast and confess when life is difficult and it's a bit rubbish, quite frankly. 
Because you want help from God. Everything has gone wrong and you want God to sort it out. You come in repentance, don't you? And fast and you pray. But remember, God's heart in all of this, we had it another week, was to return to him. Return to me and I will return to you. God didn't want religiosity. He didn't want these people returning to him to get stuff, to get their problems sorted out. So often we are led that path, aren't we? We want things. We want God to give us something. Something's gone wrong. Something's not quite working for me. But he is looking for people with a heart that is seeking him. Just him. And that's a massive challenge, isn't it? God says, you know, what I want is clear and what he's always wanted in clear. In Zechariah 7, verse 9 and 10, he says, this is what I want you guys to do, not vast. I want you to administer true justice. I want you to show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. God is not desiring the, the appearance of repentance. He's not requiring that they look like they're repenting, that they're fasting on certain days. He is looking for a change of heart, the heart that wants what he wants, a heart that wants him and wants what he is desiring, not what they are desiring. Now, if that was it for today, if I close it up, that's a good enough message in itself, isn't it? That we need to be desiring God and what he wants, not just stuff. But God does not stop there. This is never where God stops. This is only for us to see how desperately we need him. That is all it is about here. It's the only way for us to see how truly good the good news is. Because if it was about always rebuking and saying, I'm rubbish, I can't do it, come back to God, we know we're going to fail. We're going to fail again and again and again. There has to be more to good news than this. If you go to our friends and we say, hey, it's good news. You have stuffed up, sorted out. It's not going to be enough, is it? There has to be good news. And chapter 8 is where that good news comes in. When we get an acute sense of the reality that we've tried hard, we've tried to do the right things, but we desperately need the grace of God. All we can do is ask for mercy. And like David, who wanted to praise God and worship God, and he's renowned for this, when he messed up, when he had adultery, and when he murdered someone, he cried out to God, create in me a clean heart. And why was that? Because he knew he couldn't do it on his own. He needed God to do something in his heart. We need a life-changing experience, don't we? We need God to do something in our hearts to change us from the inside out. So let's look at chapter 8, because chapter 8 is full of promises. It's full of God's love for us. And the first thing I want to note about chapter 8 is the words, Lord Almighty. We've had them again and again sort of splattered through this, haven't we? We notice he's not called 
just the Lord or many other words for it, Lord Almighty is used. And when John Simmons came, he said, you know, this is like a heavenly host. It's above all things. It's 10 times just in chapter 8, we read the Lord Almighty. This is someone above powers and principalities, above everything. It reminds us of what Jesus is spoken of. When we see him in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21, it talks about him being above all things, seated on a throne. And this is the Lord that we need to have our minds on, isn't it? When we're struggling, we need to be trusting in this kind of God. This is the kind of God we are trusting in. It's one that is above all things. This is the one that we want to look to. He sits on the rainbow-encircled throne with lightning and peals of thunder. And those around the throne sing day and night the words that we sung. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the Lord that we are coming before. His throne, his mightiness, his majesticness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This is who is speaking. This is who they are speaking to and saying, should we stop fasting? He pinpoints their true heart. And what hope do we have? Verse 2. I love this verse. He says, I am jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. How amazing is that verse in itself? There's nothing lukewarm about God. When we, normally when we have burning, we associate it with rage or anger. But here it's associated with love. A hurricane of love and passion that God feels for his people, for us. It is white hot, like fire burning for us, his people. And he will not let anything get in the way between him and his people. He is a jealous God. In Romans, it tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. No height, no power, nothing will separate us because he has this jealous, intense burning, fiery love for us, his people. That is good news. That is good news. And he says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem, verse 3. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This will happen. And he is so certain of this happening that you kind of get, I read in this commentary, you get this weird verb usage. I don't know. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. But as far as I could understand it, it's a little bit like saying, I will ate the cake. So kind of past and future in the same bit to show the certainty. And I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? Of what we know of God outside of time, above all things. It's as certain the future as if it had already happened. He will return. God will return to his people. He has returned to his people. His presence, his being with them will change how she is. His presence will change how she is. Set apart for his purposes, faithful and true. Not 
I will come if she changes, but I will come because I will come and she will be changed. And verse 4 and 5, it says, Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with a cane in hands because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. And here we have, with God's presence, this beautiful picture of peace, where children play. Imagine that, just playing in the street. We won't even let our kids play in the street, will we? Children playing. No more war or enemies oppress them. No longer does anyone die young of famine or illness. There is laughter and joy. There are no more tears for the dwelling of God is with his people. Sound familiar? In Revelation chapter 1, we see the same picture, don't we? God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And this promise to all God's people, a future with him, With us, we are with him, and by that, we are changed. Verse 6. It may seem marvellous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And it's true that sometimes God's promises can seem so out of touch with what we see around us. It's not hard to become a bit cynical about anything ever happening. We look at the state of affairs around us, just as those did who were building the temple. And as they stood there building, they're still really aware that they're still not free. They still don't have anything like the days of Solomon. Nothing like that, in fact. It seems impossible to them that it will happen and it's easy in that situation to become crushed in our spirit and accept that what it is now is the norm that's how it should be but we're reminded in scripture aren't we again and again if we think of the great kind of points where God has done has uh, spoken a promise and people have doubted. He says um, in Numbers, is the Lord's arm too short? He says in Mark's uh, gospel, all things are possible with God. In Genesis, again to Abram, is anything too hard for the Lord? And here God reminds them, will it seem marvelous to me? (laughs) Pretty obviously no. Obviously, no. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The one who sits on that throne, rainbow and circle, jasmine and all the other stuff that's glittering around him and the angels and the different scary animals of worship. There he is. He says, is this impossible to me? Is it? Verse 7, I will save my people from countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. 
I am going to do this. That's what he's saying. I am going to do this. It might seem impossible to you, but I am going to bring people from the east and the west, from the whole earth to me. And they will be my people. They will be my people. So verse 9, let your hands be strong so the temple may be built. Let your hands be strong. Get on with what I've told you to do. Don't be weak. Okay, it might not look like it. But praise God, get on and do what you have been told to do. Because God will make it happen. He says, keep going. He reminds them of what has happened so far, how he has, they have laid the temple. They has curbed their enemies. He's brought peace again already. He's brought a certain amount of prosperity. Keep trusting in me. Verse 12. What will happen when God's presence is with them? The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong." The inheritance that was promised is theirs. The blessing is theirs. It is there. But, did it happen? We get a sense that God came and dwelt with them. He enabled them to finish the temple. We saw Jesus coming, the Almighty One, dwelling in Jerusalem, walking the streets. We see the Spirit of God descending and dwelling with and in the people of God to change them from the inside out. And His Spirit brings us a glimpse of that eternal kingdom, God's kingdom, where lives are changed and bodies are healed. But we're still not there, are we? In its fullness, we're not there. The heavenly Jerusalem. As God gave Israel earthly metaphors of hope that nourished in them something to come, because they couldn't even begin to imagine how great the love of God and what was prepared for them. So he gives us earthly benefits and visions and prophecies to nourish our hope in what he has for us. We are shown to Jerusalem in earthly terms. But the spirit lives in us as a guarantee, we're told, of what is to come. It is a glimpse, only a glimpse. Whenever we feel the love of God, whenever we've had a moment in our life when we thought God is real. He is here now in this place, in my bedroom, in this meeting. And you feel that wave of love of God rippling over you. That is just the smallest taste of what is to come in the future when the dwelling of God is with man. We will be where God is and God 
will be with us. God is so determined to do good to us that he has made it possible in a way only he could. The cross of Christ reminds us again of his burning, passionate love for us. That nothing, no height, no depth, no power, no principality, no demonic force, nothing will separate us from that burning love of Christ Jesus. Verse 13 and 15, our response. Do not be afraid. Trust God's determined, fiery, jealous love for you. Do what he has asked you to do. Speak the truth to each other, verse 16, and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. This is our true act of worship. It's not fasts or songs or feasts or righteous words, but it is our actions acting the way that God wants us to. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It sums it up. And when we draw on his presence and ask him those words, create in me a new heart. We start to get a heart for what he wants, how he wants things changed. And we start to pray what he wants and not what we want. We see in the last few verses that he returns to that idea of fasting. And this is what he says. This boy says. He says that their fasts will turn into feasts. Their fasts will become feasts to God as people are invited and drawn to him into the great wedding banquet with the Lamb. No more fasting, no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering. The fast will become feasts as we fight justice and bring peace and speak truth to one another. Because we have a different reality. This is not the norm. We can face it as Abraham did, that our bodies are as good as dead. But that is not the end. God has promised and he will fulfill it. We have a future where God reigns. That God, that picture, he reigns. Where people aren't hungry, where children don't work 13 hours days. When women aren't objects to be traded. When relationships are not about what you can get. And where children aren't bullied or shamed. Enjoyment in life is about the one we are with, the Lord Almighty not about what we can get or possess or achieve. And how the world is now, how our lives are, is not how it's meant to be. This is not all there is. There is hope. There is a certain future and a powerful love. And this is the good news that we have for the world. If we don't have this part... And we have no news. 
good news is what we are offering. That the God who created the universe loves us. That he sent his son to die for us. So passionate and raging was his love that he would give everything to have us with him and change us. We're going to um, just listen to some music now. I'm going to invite the uh, guys to come and play. I thought it would be good for us just to wait in God's presence, um, just quietly before him, um, to invite his spirit to show us that love. Maybe you are someone that has never felt, even for a moment, that inkling of the passionate love of Christ. Then I invite you today to, to cry out to God and to speak to him. To show you his love. Maybe you want to imagine the throne of our creator. That whatever powers, whatever our battles we are facing at the moment, he is our God. Or maybe we need to respond with those words of David, create in me a clean heart, God. I know I can't do it. I need you. If you would um, like prayer quietly in the, in the main church hall, there'll be a few guys from the prayer team who'd be more than happy to pray with you. Um, just as an option, if you want somewhere quiet to go, just sneak out.